Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. I am Sarah LaFleur, and I am the founder and CEO of M.M. LaFleur. We are a fashion brand and styling service for busy working women. In the moment, there was nothing else I I wanted to do. Um, That was really what I felt passionate about, which was trying to create better clothing for working women. Um, So it was just one foot in front of the other. Uh, It was only in hindsight that I realized how hard it was. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Sarah LaFleur is the founder and CEO of M.M. LaFleur, the popular clothing resource for professional women. She discusses how she made the transition from a demanding consulting career to creating her own business and brand. So Sarah, when you were younger, you had an Excel spreadsheet where you planned out eight scenarios for your life. Would you tell us about that? Uh, Veronica, I'm already impressed with the research you've done. Um, <laughs> yes, it was. A, I was a, an Excel nerd, if you will. I was working in management consulting, so um, we lived in, in the world of spreadsheets. And I think around the time I was 26, um, I had kind of this career crisis, if you will. I think it happens to many of us who come out of school and they totally. get some sort of job that you're supposed to get right out of school. Mm-hmm. And then you get kicked off that track, uh, and you actually have to figure out what you're going to do with your life. And uh, I I had one of those moments when I was 26, and I I made this Excel spreadsheet uh, years along uh, the the y-axis, if you will, and then scenarios along the x-axis, and tried to plot where my life would go. And I ultimately had, you know, seven scenarios. Uh, The short of it is, you know, none of these things happened. Um, and basically less than a year later, I I went on an entirely different path that my 26-year-old self couldn't even imagine. What were some of the scenarios? I'm just curious. Um, you know, it was, I'm, I'm, all, I'm embarrassed to say this now, but I mean, at the time, the trend was after management consulting, you would actually, you would go to business school or you would go into private equity. And your imagination uh did not stretch further beyond that. <laughs> and and so I, I thought I wanted to go into private equity, um, which I did ever so briefly, uh, which turned out to be not the place I ultimately wanted to be. Fashion entrepreneurship is probably one of the hardest types of entrepreneurship. Why didn't you pick something easier? Yeah, you're right. Uh, I think if I had known, I wouldn't have started it. There is uh, there's a lot of blessing in not knowing how hard things are or will be. Um, I still feel that way. I think now looking back, if I knew how difficult it would be, I, I would be I would be thinking twice, three times. Um, but you know, I think at the moment there. Uh, in the moment, there was nothing else I, I wanted to do. Um, that was really what I felt passionate about, which was trying to create better clothing for working women. Um, so it was just one foot in front of the other. Uh, it was only in hindsight that I realized how hard it was. What's the hardest part about it? Um, I would say definitely the your your kind of self-motivation. Um, I uh, reference a lot this this metaphor um, when I'm talking to other entrepreneurs, which is that it feels like you're you're pushing off an island, and you're swimming to some 
faraway island in the distance and you're swimming and you look up and you suddenly can't actually see the island that you thought you saw. And so, but you look back and you can definitely see the island that you came from and you think it would be so much easier to just turn back and to swim back. Um, so uh, someone made fun of me that my quote is actually from Finding Nemo, which is keep swimming. But that is actually what <laughs> entrepreneurship feels like, which is a, you know, constantly swimming against the tide and, and trying to see if you're still headed in the direction that you thought you were. You changed your company's business model about two years after launching. So what's your advice for entrepreneurs who are trying to decide when to pivot the business? Yes, uh, this is a really tricky question because I think entrepreneurs pride themselves by nature on their grit. You know, they hold in uh, and they hold tight when other people uh, give up and that's what they take pride in. You know, I will always stick it out. Um, But I I think the pivot is very important uh, because it, it, it basically, when you can't find traction in your business, when things aren't going the way you expected it to, um, rather than kind of grinding your teeth through it, it's actually a good moment to look up and say, what am I doing wrong? And it's not usually the amount of effort you're putting into it. You're working the hardest you've ever worked in your life. And actually what you need to do is rethink your business model, rethink who you're going after. Um, maybe you need to change up uh, your product offering. There, there are a lot of other things that you actually need to change. But um, I think that's like one of the that is one of the trickiest things of, of being an entrepreneur is knowing when it's not your hard work, but uh, it's a, it's a moment to to make a switch in your business in order to get your business to the next level. How do you figure that out though? If you're so focused on the business, you're so in that business. Yeah, um, for me, it's about having a really good team because I am definitely that person who just kinds of kind of tries to force her way through it. She's like, you know, I think like. Gosh, you know, Sarah, if you just worked a little harder, all of this will will happen. And um, I just I know that's my tendency. So I've had I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky in terms of the the executive team that I have. I, I think of them, you know, I mean, yes, they report into me, but they are also my my mentors. And uh, um, I would say also my founding members especially have been instrumental in saying like, hey, we should we should think of a different tactic. That's always uh, that's often my wake up call. You said the first $400,000 you had to raise was the most difficult. How come? Uh, Because we had no traction at that point. You know, nobody had ever heard about us. And I mean, like you said earlier, Veronica, fashion is notoriously a difficult place to make money. And um, I was, I I really was just going out and saying, believe in in me. Uh, ultimately, I didn't realize, though, at the time that that's what I was selling. I was I was selling myself. I was going out there. I was trying to, you know, with my fancy PowerPoint slides and, and showing them what I thought the business could be and my financial model and whatnot. But at that stage in the business, when um, what well, we had our initial uh, we had our initial samples, our products, but we had never really we had we hadn't even launched an e-commerce site at that point. So it was very, very early stages. Um, not a lot of revenue to show for it. And, and really, at that point, what you're selling is, is yourself and your team. Um, and it, it took me a while to recognize that. I think it almost took nine months, maybe even longer to raise that 400000 um, Still to this day, the hardest, hardest round that I've ever raised. Is that difficult as an entrepreneur, the idea of selling yourself, right? Because it seems so subjective. Totally. And I, you know, my, 
my mother's Japanese. I spent most of my childhood in Japan. It's a uh, it's a cultural thing, but modesty is a highly valued trait. And you're suddenly meeting these people, and you're saying, "I'm amazing. Believe in me. I'm the one person out of a hundred that's going to make it." Um, there's a total foolhardiness that is involved in in the whole song and dance. And uh, yes, it is. Um, there's an element of practice makes perfect. I, I've gotten pretty good at it, but I, you know, the feedback I still get from investors is, "You really shouldn't speak so modestly." Or um, I remember one year we did uh, eight million in revenue, but instead of saying eight, I said seven point eight. You know, and it's kind of like round up. <laughs> I want it. Um, so, what do you say to uh, women who don't have connections to funders? Because you know we've just heard all the studies. It's so much more difficult for women to get funding for their business, especially minority women. Yeah, I. This is something um, that is really important to me, and I think I, I just you know I, I don't. I think if I if I think about my background, you know, I I went to an Ivy League school. I got to work at a fancy management consulting firm and then in private equity. And so in some ways, I am someone who should be connected to all these people. And yet I found it incredibly, incredibly difficult. So I think when women come up to me and say, you know, I am having the hardest time fundraising, I always have to just shake them and say, it is not you. It is the ecosystem. It has nothing to do with what you're doing. Um, And uh, it it really, it breaks my heart. Um, I think about also my mother, my mother being an entrepreneur. And and so there is a huge... uh, there's a huge environmental, uh, just what's happening in the zeitgeist that I think plays into it. And um, I think when I go to uh, these pitch events that are focused on women, you know, they keep coaching the women on what they should be doing better. But uh, honestly, I think they're doing so much right already. And what really needs to catch up is the funding environment. Coach the, coach the funders. Coach the funders, exactly, <laughs> right, not the women. Coming up, Sarah LaFleur explains how running a female-led company helps women find their individuality. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. How can entrepreneurs figure out who their customers are? Because it seems like you have a pretty good read on who yours are. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I had an advantage there, which is that I was the customer. So, um, and I am still the customer. So I know her in and out. Um, and I I was friends with these people. I worked with these people. So I, I kind of immediately had an instinct for what it was that she was looking for. I knew my customers wanted wrinkled, resistant fabrics, uh, machine washable fabrics. I, I knew that she wanted pieces that wouldn't fall apart. Um, pieces that fit well. All of these things were very obvious to me, but it really wasn't until um, I met Miyako, my creative director. So she was the former head designer at Zach Posen, had worked extensively with Jason Wu, you know, came from a, a high in fashion background. And um, I, I, told, I, I told her, you know, Miyako, I, I want to design for these women. You know, these women, working women, they, they walk to work in the summer in flip flops and they have heels, you know, 
uh, in their in their huge bag yes. that carries everything, and and they swap out of their flats into their heels on the elevator. You know these women, right? And <laughs> she was like, "No, I, I've never met anyone like that." And that was Hilarious. the moment where I was like, "Yes, this is the huge disconnect between the world of fashion and the actual woman out there begging for these clothes." Yeah, it's um, you know, I think in, in consumer goods, it's it's obvious to test your your product with your users, but in fashion, that's a really uh, novel concept. And I think that was really one of the reasons that that we became successful is we were actually always testing our products with our customers. We were asking them for feedback. Um, and, and so that's something I think that fundamentally kind of separated us from, from the start. How do you cope with the anxiety of running a business? Oh, uh, with a lot of help. I mean, I, I joke that if people knew the amount of time and money I spent on my mental health, they would probably be be shocked. I have a psychiatrist who I've been seeing basically since actually even before I started my business. Um, I, I see her once a week. I have a, a coach. Um, uh, on the business side, and I run every morning, um, and it, those things are, are essential. And I, um, it, one thing I've really come to appreciate as CEO is like if I if I bring bad energy into the company, everyone feels it. I, I think of myself as a pretty even keeled person, but I remember one day I I, uh, I I guess I must have slammed the window shut tight. You know, I, I made a sound when I when I closed the window. I. I did not remember this at all, uh, but a few days later, um, one of my one of my team members came up to me and she said, "Yeah, we knew you were angry that day because you slammed the the window shut really tight." And I was like, "Oh my gosh! Like, I can't believe people are paying attention to that little thing," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I really see it as my responsibility to bring good energy into the company, um, and, and mental health is a huge part of my being happy. Um, I've struggled with depression in the past. It's a, uh, I think it's very common around, among entrepreneurs, and and uh, I really try to own that uh, and be open about it. It's important to talk about it too. Yes. I think that empowers other people to talk about it. So I commend you for that. Thank you. Um, also, you know, for you know, getting personal here, I understand you went through a difficult time last year, and I was wondering if you would tell us about that. Oh, sure, yes. Um, you know, this is something that I, I'm only really beginning to talk about, which is uh, my struggle with infertility. Um, so, uh, the short uh, the short story is, um, I don't I don't have kids, um, don't have kids yet, um, but I did go through, gosh, over the past two years, maybe. Th- three rounds of uh, IVF and a variety of treatments. Um, I also counted that I'd spent over 200 hours at the doctor's office going from, you know, one to the other. It really became my other job. Uh, And, you know, I I wanted to bring it up because I think – you know, the questions around what is it like to be a female entrepreneur? How is it different from being a male entrepreneur? Um, So many things are different, but this is an area that I think very few people talk about. Um, This is just a fundamental difference. Uh, I just, you know, just in the world of infertility, usually um, most cases are associated with female infertility, not that male infertility doesn't exist, but there are just so many more things that could go wrong um, with uh, the female reproductive system. So it's it's something that uh, has definitely been a big life challenge for me and learning how to balance this big life challenge with running a startup, um, it was a, a whole new 
test for me. Um, you know, I, my mother, I think, actually gave me some really wise words, which is um, she was like, you have two babies right now. You want the, the baby that uh, you want to make, and you have the baby that's your company. Um, and right now you're going to have to prioritize. And so I really, for now, I've actually just kind of put it on hold. Um, and I'm focusing on the company, which is the baby I already have, and, and putting my all into it. Um, but the really the, the famous quote of, you can have it all, just not at the same time, that really sticks with me. Um, and I, you know, I kind of feel like, I, I mean, it, it's almost comical how much I feel like I'm, I'm a poster child of that saying. Um, but, um, you know, kind of giving myself a break and, and trying really not to do it all at the same time. Uh, and having a lot of appreciation, I think, for the women who have gone through these struggles in the past uh, and, and trying to bring it more to the open because I think it's still something that most women and men don't feel comfortable talking about. For sure. What would be the piece of career advice you would give to your younger self? I wish I was not so hard on myself. I mean, I spent most of my 20s really thinking about what is it that I want to do with my life. You know, I'm not someone who has a ton of passions outside of work. I mean, I run, but I run for, for really for, for release. And um, it's not as though I have this other thing outside of my day-to-day job that um, I would call my life vocation. Um, of course, I, I, have a, I have a loving husband and a great family and great friends, but um, aside from that, work is my my passion, and so throughout my twenties, I was I really I did so I, I did a lot of soul searching about what this could be, and um, I think what I wish I could tell myself back then was you know to just uh, not be so hard on myself that I hadn't found this this calling, if you will, um, and that if I had just if I just did the thing that was in front of me. Um, with with a hundred percent effort, then ultimately it would get me to the right place. But let me tell you, I think it, being in your twenties is really hard. It's really uh, hard. a lot of a lot of panic and struggle about who you are as a person, what your professional identity is, and you know also who you are outside of work. Um, I think you're struggling with all of those things, and so that would be the advice I'd give to myself. Do you think women struggle with this more than the guys? <laughs> um, well. You know, I don't know about that per se, but I would say it's a it's a common topic of conversation with my girlfriends. And I think it's also interesting to see how kids play into it. I mean, now I have a lot of girlfriends who have kids and um, they uh, are maybe going part time or they're choosing to stay at home or they're kind of I call it cruising in their career. You know, they 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 know if they really wanted the, the next um level the next promotion they could be putting in even more time even more hours but they're kind of putting the brake on that and so i think there there are a lot of factors that come into play and and i think women are more so than men having to constantly figure out um how much of themselves to put into their their career versus other parts of their lives and i do think that is actually uniquely female i was just with my my college girlfriends uh this weekend and we were talking exactly about that you know um you know we thought we would uh, be the generation that um, would somehow balance it all equally with our spouses. But as we look around, I think that's not necessarily what we see. Um, and just how 
the environment around us is geared to make mothers the, the primary caretaker in many situations. That's, that's something we talk a lot about. Still, yeah. Uh, what is one fashion mistake you see professional women making? Oh, um, I would say this one is dressing like one of the men. Oh, <laughs> so I, you know, it's... Um, I think this is also tied to one of the reasons I wanted to start my company, which is I think a lot of suiting out there is basically male suits just kind of shrunken down into women's bodies to fit women's bodies. And it's it's often not a look that looks great Mm, on women. Women have curves, you know, it's. The boxy shirts, the boxy uh, blazers, they're, they're not meant to actually they, – they were never designed for women's bodies. Um, and so that's one thing that we've really emphasized. Miyako, uh, Miyako, my creative director, she's a genius when it comes to fitting clothes against women's curves. And she always says, I design in 3D, not in 2D. Um, so I think that's what our customers most notice about our clothes is just the fit around the curves. And then we also then put our clothes on women of all body shapes and sizes before we actually go into production, which I promise you is a thing that 99% of fashion companies don't do. Um, women have curves, and I think that's, that's really something we're trying to uh, own through the clothing we make. Time now for your secrets. I am Sarah LaFleur, and my money secret is to create your own opportunities. If you don't like the size of the pie, then you should try to make it bigger to accommodate you. And if you don't like the flavor of the pie, then you should make your own pie. Be sure to check out our ebook based on the Secrets podcast. WSJ subscribers can download their copy of Resilience How 20 Ambitious Women Use Obstacles to Fuel Their Success for free on WSJ.com today. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.